0: Would you join me in prayer? Lord, all that we do is for your glory. It is right that this is so because you are God. All that we do includes proclaiming your word and includes hearing your word. And so would you help us now, I pray. Would you help us by inclining our hearts toward your testimonies? Lord, we come to your word so often and our hearts are cold. So would you incline our hearts this morning to hear? Lord, we come and our eyes are blind and so would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word? We know that in your word the glory of Christ is displayed and so help us to see, Lord. Lord, we come and we listen, but our hearts are so easily divided between following and obeying your word and what we think will lead us to happiness. So Lord, I pray that as we behold you in your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. And Lord, as you do this work in us by your spirit, would you do what only you can do satisfy our souls with your steadfast love? God, I pray that you do this by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, friends. We are on our second week of journeying through the Ten Commandments. We are going to start looking at the individual commandments today, which means we're going to be covering Commandments 1 and 2. And I know that in Sunday school, the kiddos have been memorizing the Ten Commandments. And so I'm wondering if any of our kiddos in children's Sunday school can tell me, what is the first commandment? I bet Ruthie can. What is it? You shall have no other gods before me. That's right. And can anyone tell me the second commandment, any of our kiddos? Mm, Ruthie's thinking about it. Ruthie's got it. What is it, Ruthie? Yeah, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Good. Those are the ones we're going to be talking about today. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. These are part of the Ten Commandments, which the New City Catechism covers in question eight. I encourage you, as we walk through these, work on memorizing particularly question eight. I can tell you I'm not afraid to confess, although I'm a little bit ashamed to confess it. That it is hard for me to remember what the Ten Commandments are and remember what their order is. The first two I'm pretty good on, but after that they get kind of fuzzy. And so I would encourage you, because I imagine many of you are like that as well, work on memorizing this question and answer. So let's say it together. I'm going to ask the question and then let's read the answer together. What is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal you shall not give false testimony, you shall not covet. Amen. We are going to be working through these commandments two at a time over the next few messages, few Catechism Sundays that we share together. Today we're going to cover, like I said, the first two. Before we do, I want to remind us, last week we talked about why do we study these Ten Commandments? What does it benefit us, especially if, like we talked about last week, we are not legally bound by the law of Moses anymore, because the law of Christ has fulfilled the law of Moses and supersedes it. Why study the Ten Commandments? We talked about these three reasons. They show us what God is like they reveal the character of God to us. They show us how God has created this world and designed it to lead to shalom. Living at peace with God in his promised blessing. They not only do that, but they point to Jesus. They act like prophecy. They tell us about Christ because they show what his righteousness is going, would be like. And they show us our need for his righteousness, because we fail to meet the righteous standard of the law. Not only that, but they continue to teach us then how to live a life of God-centered love. So we're going to see those benefits from the first two commandments as we go through this morning. Uh, As I approach these commandments, I'm going to do it a little bit differently than I may do a normal sermon in that I'm going to show more of my homework. There's a lot of work that goes into preparing to preach, and most of it ends up informing the preaching, but not actually brought into the preaching. But I want you to see how we get to how these commandments apply to us today, not just that they apply to us today, okay? So we're going to walk through how we get to how do we understand the Ten Commandments today, and these, these slides... Will be posted up with the sermon as well So if you want to refer back to some of this stuff to help remind you that's good We're also going to be walking through this every time we go through the commandments So it'll be similar and we'll get used to it by the end These are three steps that we're going to follow That's going to cover the flow of how we're going to go through this first When we're trying to interpret and apply the Old Testament law We need to establish the original meaning and purpose of the law We'll do that first Then Once we've got that down, once we know what it means in its original context, then we think about the theological significance. We determine the theological significance of the law. We'll talk about what that means when we get there. Then once we do that, once we know what it means in its original context and we know what it's telling us about God and his ways. Then we're ready to summarize the lasting significance of the law for today. We're ready to say, how does it apply to us now on this side of the cross, living here and now? How does it tie into love God and love neighbor? So I'm going to. Go through that with us, but I'm not just going to go through it. When we get to step three, summarizing the lasting significance of the law for today, I also want us to help see how to apply these beautiful commands. Because this is not just trying to teach you guys how to do this. This is also a sermon, right? And we're trying to exhort us to live and follow God's ways. So let's dig in here. Step one. First thing we need to do is establish the original meaning and purpose of the law. This, we start with reading our text, right? The law is given to us in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. I'm going to read that for us now. Here's what Moses writes. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first thing I want us to notice about the meaning of this, at at the surface level, it's it's clear, right? Don't worship other gods beside God and don't make idols. But to help us us grasp the meaning, I want to dig a little bit deeper than that. One of the first things we need to see is that ultimately this is about worship. We see that in verse 5. Why don't you make any idols? Because you're going to be tempted to bow down to them and serve them. This is the way that worship is consistently talked about in the Old Testament. You bow down and you serve. This whole thing is going to be about worship then. It's important for us to understand this meaning then, to understand how the Bible thinks about worship. I'm going to define it for us in this way. Worship is wholehearted love that leads to trust, obedience, dependence, and thanksgiving. When we look at patterns of worship throughout the scriptures, we see these themes come up. This love that causes me to trust someone or something, that leads me to obey that person or that thing, to do what that person or thing requires. This includes God, right? Normally we would trust God and we would then obey him. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. But this also includes other things, right? If I put my trust in Egypt and their horses and chariots, I'm going to obey them by sending them the gold that they require so that they'll aid me in military and I'll hopefully have victory. That's what Israel did. They turned away from God to places like Egypt and trusted in them and then obeyed their ways. Not only that, but it leads to dependence. It leads to leaning on that person or that thing for what I need to be happy, to be satisfied, to be secure, everything like that. And when that person or that thing comes through, it includes thanksgiving, right? Worship. Part of our worship is giving thanks to God for what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. So all of these things are wrapped up in that idea of worship. And that idea is present here in Exodus chapter 20. It's about ultimately worship. It's this wholehearted love that leads to trust, obedience, dependence, and thanksgiving. Now when we look at through this text and we ask what is this telling us about worship? Why should we worship? How should we worship? We see these things. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This t- speaks to the exclusivity of worship. We only worship God. We don't worship other gods besides him or in addition to him or in place of him. We worship God alone in verse 3. We not only worship God alone, but there's a a, a way to worship God rightly. Verse 4 talks about not making yourself a carved image. Right worship requires that we worship God as he reveals himself. He talks later in Deuteronomy about no form being seen when he appeared in fire on the mountain, giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And he says, "You you don't make idols then because no form was seen. You saw only that God is spirit. So it calls us to worship God rightly. And then, not only that, but this Exodus 20 here in verses 5 and 6 lays out that there are blessings and curses tied into how we worship. What, What we see is that the Lord is a jealous God, or another way to put that might be zealous God. He's jealous or zealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Those who refuse to worship him rightly receive judgment. But then in verse 6, and it's amplified because he says to thousands, he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. So right worship leads to blessing, leads to the steadfast love of the Lord being shown, and false worship, wicked worship, leads to curse. This is summarized for us in the New City Catechism, In question number nine, if you're working through the New City Catechism, you'll notice that questions nine through, I think it's 12, cover what the law of God requires. They summarize what the law of God is saying to us theologically. They're helpful summaries. The thing is, they don't match up with the order we're going through, and we're going through them two at a time, and the first question addresses three of them. So I've modified it a little bit here for us. This question, what does God require in the first and second commandments, I want us to read the answer together after I ask it. So Sojourner's Church, what does God require in the first and second commandments? First, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. So here you can see it's about worship. It's about right knowing and trusting of God, right? That those things that tie into what I said worship means. This is the, the meaning then of this text. Why was it given to us though? What is its purpose? Okay. We want to think about meaning. What does it say? And then purpose. Why is it in our Bibles? Okay, so the purpose of this text is to be a central law for the life of God's people. It's ultimately to lead them to live in the land under covenant blessing. And to do that, it expresses that there's an exclusive nature to the relationship between God and his people. God has said... In Exodus, as he's bringing his people out of the promised land, I will rescue you and I will be your God and you will be my people. This was the promise he made to Abraham too. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will give you offspring, right? God has an exclusive claim on his people. And that's expressed here when he says, I am the Lord, your God. In verse 2. In verse 3, it makes the terms of these relationships explicit. You shall have no other gods before me. It's just me. And in verse 4, it says, You shall make not make for yourself a carved image. This ties into... Excuse me, I, I'm going to... Uh, I'll go to that in a minute. But before we get to there, verse 6 shows that ultimately, it's about this covenant relationship. So verse, verse 6 says, Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's a description, a shorthand for... Covenant relationship with God loving him keeping his commandments experiencing the blessings of steadfast love Why else is this text in here? One of the other implicit purposes in having this scripture in our Bibles is that it exposes the heart of God's people that at the at their heart There's a sin problem because what do God's people do in response to this? They're given this command and then we read about right away in Judges, after they're brought into the promised land, after they experience blessing and enter into houses that they didn't build and cisterns that they didn't dig and enjoy the fruit that they didn't plant, they abandon the Lord their God. They, they, they go after the idols of the nations. The Bible talks about this as, as whoring, going after in an adulterous way, violating the relationship that was exclusive to Yahweh and going after others. And this text is in here to show us that that ought not to be the case and therefore expose the sinful hearts of God's people. It's even exposed as God is giving these commands to his people and the mountain is on fire and Moses is up there and the tablets are being written on by the hand of God. What are God's people doing? In Exodus 34, they're down and they say, Man, Moses has been up there a while. I have no idea what's going on. Aaron, make us a calf. Make us a God to go before us. It exposes, even in the giving of this law, that God's people are idolatrous people. That we have a heart problem, a worship problem that needs to be dealt with. That's part of the purpose of this law. Taking this meaning and this purpose, then, what we do next in thinking about this is we reflect theologically. What does this mean about who God is? What does this mean about who we are? How does Jesus fulfill this? So first, theological significance, thinking about God and his ways. We ask the question, what does the law tell us about God and his ways? Remember, when we study the Ten Commandments, we want to learn more about the character and nature of God. So we ask this question, what does it tell us? First of all, it tells us that God is worthy of worship. Verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. I am the one who has created everyone and everything, the one who causes to be. God, by his very nature as creator, is worthy of worship. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 2, he continues, right? And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why is God worthy of worship? Because he saved his people, right? There, there was this concept in the Old Testament times called a Caesarian Treaty. This idea that someone, a king, would come in and rescue a people and that then they would owe that king allegiance and they would give allegiance to that king and he would continue to protect and care for them. That's the way that the Old Testament covenant is set up, that King Yahweh rescued his people from Egypt and is now their God and they owe him allegiance because he rescued them and he cares for them and blesses them and watches over them. This tells us, first of all, that God is worthy of worship. But not only that, it tells us that God alone is worthy of worship. In Deuteronomy, when Moses is reflecting on the law in chapter 4, he talks about God rescuing his people out of Egypt and going before them in a a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and parting the Red Sea and wiping out Pharaoh's armies. All these things they saw him do. and And Moses says, is there any other nation that has a God like Yahweh? Is there any other God worthy of worship like this? The answer, of course, is no. God alone is worthy of worship. That's what verse 3 means. You shall have no other gods before me. Not because there's not other gods. Now we think about that and we think about God versus other gods. We don't live in a culture that thinks about other gods. But here he's also talking about demonic forces, angels, other, other gods of the nation that are not gods, that have no power. Dagon and Baal and Asherah. All those kind of things that we, th- we don't think about. We think, of course you wouldn't worship those. They don't exist. But in-, in their culture, they would have thought of those gods as having power over the fertility of crops, over the successful voyage on the sea. Those kind of things. So God is saying, I alone am worthy of worship because there's none other like me. There may be other forces like Satan and his demons, but there is no one like Yahweh. And he alone is worthy of worship. Of worship. Not only that, but it shows us that God cares about how He is worshipped. Here's that text I referenced earlier, Deuteronomy four, fifteen to nineteen. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, this is when the Ten Commandments were given. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself. In the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, he goes on, right? Likeness of any creature on earth or under the earth, matching up the commandment really well. God cares how we worship because he has revealed himself in a particular way, not through a form that we might recreate and then worship that. How has God revealed himself? He's revealed himself, first of all, through speaking, right? Right? You saw no form in the day that the Lord spoke to you out of horror, but you did hear a voice. You did hear words. God reveals himself in his words. And how has he revealed himself? He destroyed the armies of Egypt. He rescued his people from slavery. He revealed himself through his acts, through his mighty works, what he did on behalf of his people. God reveals himself through word and through act. And therefore, that's how we learn to worship him. Not by creating a picture of him that we can then worship or a statue of him that we can then worship. So this text reveals that God cares how he is worshiped. And it reveals that God is zealous to be worshiped rightly. Right in verse 5, when he says, I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. It reveals that God will punish false worship. And it reveals that God is zealous. To show his steadfast love, right? That's the difference between three or four generations. It's not meaning to be precise and being like, if you're the fifth generation, you're okay. It's a, it's a, a way in, in Hebrew of expressing a, a small amount. Versus thousands, which is not a precise amount to say that if you're generation thousand and one, you're out of luck. It's meant to contrast, right? God will punish, but he is much more inclined to show steadfast love to those who love him. We see that God cares and is zealous that he is worshipped rightly so that he is able to show this blessing to his people. We see, again, that right worship is ultimately about this covenant keeping. Those who love me and keep my commandments. So, we see this about God and his ways. But we know that we live on this side of the cross. And so, we don't stop there. Because our question is, how does this then relate to Jesus and his fulfillment of the law, right? That's where we want to think next. What is the theological significance of Christ's fulfillment? And if you remember from last week, this diagram, this lens of some laws as they are fulfilled in Christ, some are done away with. Some go through Christ and are changed in certain ways. Some are amplified and made more intense. Others go straight through and and obedience in the old covenant doesn't look that different from obedience in the new covenant. So we're going to ask, how does this law point to Jesus? How is it affected by Jesus' fulfillment? First thing we see is that Jesus himself gives us a new pattern for what right worship of God looks like. Jesus himself, first of all, perfectly reveals God, right? Through his word and through his acts. In John 1 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How did God reveal himself? Through his word. And what happened in Jesus? His word became flesh. His word manifested God's character. Not only that, but John three sixteen and 17. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Or first John 4, 9. And this is... In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. How does Jesus change God's revelation? Jesus perfectly reveals him as the word himself incarnate and through his actions, through his perfect life and obedient death on the cross, he reveals or manifests the love of God to us. So we have this continuity. In the Old Testament, God is revealing himself through word and through his mighty acts. And in the New Testament, God is revealing himself through his word and through his mighty acts. This continues in Jesus. Jesus perfectly reveals God. Not only that, but Jesus fulfills this law in another way. He perfectly perfectly worships God alone. Matthew 4, 8-10, when Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What does Jesus do? He combats the temptation of Satan who says, I will give you this if you worship me with the command, you shall worship God alone. Jesus himself is perfectly worshiping God. He's giving us this new pattern for worship. Not only that, but he worships God in the right way, in spirit and in truth. John four twenty three to 24, he's talking to the woman at the well and she's asking, do we worship God at this mountain or at that mountain? And Jesus says to her, the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In Christ Jesus, we see Jesus himself as the word incarnate, this God-centered, spirit-empowered worship that centers on Christ. The time has come, he said. It's coming, and it's now here to worship God this way. Not only do we see this new pattern for worship in how Jesus worshipped, but we see this new pattern for worship in that Jesus' obedience himself, his obedient worship, leads to the kind of blessing that the law talks about. He says in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, not my will be done, but yours, when he's facing the cross. He's obedient, Philippians 2 talks about, even to the point of death, right? Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And what happened? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus obeyed the law of God that said, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. You shall not make any idols. And he experienced the kind of steadfast love that God says will be experienced by those who keep his law. Jesus experienced this blessing that is promised. He gives us this new pattern to worship God rightly in this way. But it doesn't do us any good if he doesn't deal with the heart problem that's exposed by the law, right? The fact that we ourselves are prone to worship anything but God. Jesus not only gives us this new pattern in how he fulfills the law, but he gives us a power to be able to obey the law as well. He says, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, excuse me. uh, Paul writes this. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus gives us a new power for worship because he himself pays the penalty for our false worship, right? That's what we see there. Then in Romans five nineteen, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He secures this blessing of righteousness for us through His own obedience. The chesed, the steadfast love of the Lord, that's promised in the commandment given to Jesus because of His obedience, is given to us through Him. So Paul's talking about here. Not only that, but He cleanses us. First Corinthians, or excuse me, Colossians. Chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus, our perfect husband, takes us as his bride. Adulterous though we are, And he cleanses us, washing us in the water of his word. He purifies us by the power of his spirit. This gives us a new power to worship God rightly as his law calls for. What we see then in Christ's fulfillment is that this law, this command to worship God alone and to not make idols To worship God rightly follows through and is carried through in Jesus' life. It continues, essentially unchanged, although it has a new center and a new focus in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. If God's people in the Old Testament worshipped him and ought to worship him because he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, how much more ought you and I to worship God alone because Christ has rescued us from slavery to sin? That's what's happening in the New Testament. That's how Christ changes how we read this law. When we're thinking about theological significance, after we wrestle through, what does this law reveal about God and his character? And how has Christ's fulfillment changed this law? Then we get to the the fruit of our labor. We summarize what is the love principle then behind this law. So behind, uh, behind the call to worship God alone and to not make idols, what is the love principle behind that? And I think it's this. The love principle is that the love of God and neighbor begins with right worship. This is what the, old, the, the, this is what the Ten Commandments teach us in Commandment 1 and 2. Love of God and neighbor begins with right worship. I want to think about how that affects us today then. Summarizing the lasting significance for the law today. What does it matter? What does it mean that love of God and neighbor begins with right worship? The thing is, we are tempted to worship creation rather than the creator. What we see in the law, in the call to worship God alone, and in Israel's response to that law, is what we see in our own lives. That we want a God. That we can fully see. And comprehend. This is what caused God's people. In Exodus. To make the golden calf. They, they were waiting for Moses. And he was gone out of their sight. And they grew impatient. As he delayed to come down. What did they say? Make us gods who shall go before us. And Aaron makes this golden calf. This is. The heart of our idolatry, that we want a God that we can see. We want a God that we can fully comprehend. The problem that we face is that God is spirit, and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, right? But in our arrogance, in our sinfulness, we tend to only trust what we can see and touch. This was Thomas' problem when he didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, right? Right? It's like, unless I see with my own eyes, unless I touch with my hands, I won't believe. We see in Hebrews 12 that even though Israel came to a mountain that was on fire and heard the voice of God come from the mountain, they didn't believe. And we've come to something that can't be seen or touched, something that requires faith. So what do we do? We worship false gods. We don't. Want to worship a God that is spirit, so we make one up. We'll get to more in that when we get into idolatry. The other thing we do, though, is we take Jesus, someone we can't see right now, and we add to him something that we can. So, for example, we might say, I know that I am made right with God only by the work of Jesus. But then we live and walk out as if it's Jesus plus what we do. Because I can measure what I did. I can count how many times I served others in the church. I can count how many times I was uh, teaching my kids the Bible. I can count how many times I prayed last week, right? I can't count how much Jesus' righteousness stands in for mine. And so because I want something that I can see... I go and I worship a God that's Jesus plus something else. I'm not worshiping God alone. I'm in violation of the law. We do this all the time. I think the one that we are in most danger of, though, is worshiping a God of our own imagination. We're called not to worship God falsely. And yet, what do we do with the fact that we have this whole concept of God who we it, 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 his, the depths of his rich and the riches of his wisdom and knowledge are so much deeper than we can possibly comprehend. We try to make God a little bit more understandable and we try to make God a little bit more relatable and we end up worshiping a caricature of God. We end up worshiping something that looks like this. This is what happens when you take a children's drawing of something and turn it into a real picture. It's humorous, but it's also a monstrosity, right? That's what our worship of God is like when we are worshiping God, not based on his self revelation in word and act through Christ, but worshiping a God of our own making a God who just wants you to be happy. Right? A God who would never judge anybody because that's so judgy. This is what happens. We are idolaters when we do that. And the the God we worship looks like that rather than Yahweh who created everyone and everything. And stands as God over all and God supreme. The gospel comes in and addresses this though. Right? God still reveals himself. How? In word and in act. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the word of God. Being living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. The word that we have in the scriptures. Is God's self-revelation to us. To keep us from distorting the picture of him. And what does he do in act? He reconciles us to himself and to one another, right? Ephesians chapter two talks about this one new man made in place of the two Jew and Gentile worshiping together. That is God revealing his character and nature and mighty acts in his people in the church. As we gather together as the church, God has manifested his character and nature and we worship in response to that picture. We must learn to worship God through his son, Jesus Christ. To worship God as he has revealed himself in word and act. If we do not, we will be violating the first commandment. We will not be worshiping God alone. What this means for us is that even a Jew today who is faithfully keeping the first commandment in being monotheistic and worshiping Yahweh... Yet rejects Christ as Messiah is violating the first commandment, is not worshiping God alone. He is not doing what we are called to do in Christ, which is worship God as Father, Son, and Spirit as He has revealed Himself. So the first commandment teaches us to worship God alone as He has revealed Himself. The second commandment teaches us that we must worship God the way He directs us. Here's the thing idolatry is stupid. Isaiah chapter 44 has this humorous, although it's also sad. I think it's really funny though. Story about this idol maker who goes out and selects a tree and chops it down and then cuts the tree in two and throws part of it on the fire and warms himself and cooks a meal and is satisfied. And then he sits down to carve the other half into a God to worship. And Isaiah said, he's too dumb to recognize half of it. I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on his coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? I don't worship as stupid. And you might ask, why would anyone worship a statue? Because we can hear this commandment to have no idols and think statues and think, oh, good. Right? I'm not as dumb as those ignorant people 2000 years ago, 3000 years ago. Why would anyone worship a statue? Friends, this is a perpetual temptation for all of us, not just those who worship statues. It's the temptation that Satan gave Jesus when he said, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. See, we're tempted. Idol worship is about trying to get what you want. We're tempted to worship what we think will get us what we want. And we're much more comfortable with that worship if it's something that we can control. See, in in the Old Testament times, idols, the, the statues, human beings had control over the gods through them because the only way the gods could eat is if humans burned sacrifices to their idols. And so the human would feed the god and the god would give the human what they wanted. And we're much more comfortable with things like that than we are with a god who needs nothing from us and who we have no control over whether he makes our ways straight or crooked. We're totally reliant on his Sovereign goodwill we don't want that we want an something we can control We also want something that's easy see idols didn't require anything Of the people who sacrificed to them As long as you made the right sacrifices you got the right results You you made the right fertility sacrifices your fields flourished Nothing to do with whether you were ethical or not God himself is not like that. He calls us To an ethical standard. His holiness. Be holy as I am holy. Right? We see this. This is why things in culture like pornography are so appealing. Because it promises pleasure without any requirement from the person. Without any requirement of relationship. Without any requirement of any kind of effect. We have a culture that wants to separate things like sexuality. Things like pleasure from any obligation on us. We want an idol that is easy, that requires nothing of us. We want an idol that's easy. We want an idol that's something that that we can control. And we want that because we ultimately only trust ourselves. Worship of God as the one true and living God and worship of Him in the right way requires that we trust someone besides ourselves. And we live in a culture that's steeped in trusting only ourselves. See, Persians worshipped the sun, and Egyptians worshipped animals, and Greeks worshipped gods in human forms. Nowadays, what do we worship? We worship ourselves. Just like Calvin says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. It's true of us. We make these idols not just statues, but we take and we worship things in creation rather than the creator. Things or concepts or ideas, money, wealth, power, sex, etc. We worship those because we think we can control them and we think that it will be easy to get what we want. Ultimately, idolatry springs from this desire to control. It's trying to manipulate God, trying to draw near to God for blessing on our own terms. But we can't do that. We see in Christ, right? There's no one that can come to the Father except through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In John 4, 14, We desire to come to God however we want, but Jesus shows us in his life that you can only come to him through his word. You can only come to him through his ways. Jesus, though, teaches us how to go to his Father. And he frees us from our idolatrous impulses. To try to skirt around God in his ways. He gives us a heart that can worship God rightly. This is the promise of the new covenant, right? Ezekiel excuse me, 36 talks about this. From all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is the promise of the new covenant. A promise that has been met in Jesus Christ. Peter talks about this when he says we've been born again to this living hope. Jesus talks about it in John 3 when he says we've been born again by water and by spirit. Jesus frees us from this idolatrous heart and gives us his spirit so that we may worship God rightly instead of trying to control and manipulate him as we are prone to do. Through Jesus... We our desire to draw near to God on our own terms is met with a God who draws near to us and who brings us into his presence on his terms by drawing near to us. This is what Hebrews talks about in chapter four, right? We have this high priest, Jesus. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Why is that? Because he is drawn near. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now what do we get as a result? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We are given a way to draw near to God that doesn't involve idols. A way to find our hope and happiness, significance and security that doesn't involve trying to find it in this world and created things in things we think we can control and manipulate for our own benefit. We're given instead the promise of God's steadfast love as we draw near to him. Our false worship, if we engage in idolatry, ultimately causes us not only problems with God, not only separates us from God as sin, but it actually destroys the very love we think we're trying to cultivate. We see this in Romans. Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about false worship and shows how it leads to destroyed love. Romans 1, 21-23, although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Violation of the first commandment, right? They did not worship God alone. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What did they do? They made idols. They failed to worship God rightly as he had called them to do. And what did it do? It destroyed their attempts at love. What were the results? They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They became fools. And then what happened? God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty For their error. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They became fools. God gave them up to the lusts of their heart. And God gave them up to sexual perversion. Their idolatry. Their refusal to worship God alone. Led to distorted expressions of love. Rather than sexuality being expressed in the covenant of marriage. As a good gift from God. It is now perverted beyond recognition. All because they failed to worship God alone. And because they failed not to make idols. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind. To do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil. Covetousness. Malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, all manner of evil. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them if you are encouraging someone around you to act in a way that leads to death, you're hating them. You're not loving them. Idolatry and failure to worship God alone leads to hatred of neighbor. It destroys the attempt to love neighbor. This is why we can say that at the heart of our failure to love neighbor is a worship problem. Love of God and love of neighbor begins with right worship of God. On the other side of the coin, we have Jesus' true worship. And what did his true worship do? It fulfilled love. John 15, 12 to 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Rightly worshiping God, rightly obeying his commands. Dying for them. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. False worship will destroy love, and true worship will cause it to flourish. That's what we see in these first two commandments. The reality is, friends, that we become like what we worship. This is what Psalm 135 says. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become like what you worship. Are you going to worship God alone and God rightly? Or are you going to worship the idols of self, the idols of false gods, the idols of Jesus plus something else? Are you going to worship falsely and destroy any attempt at loving God and neighbor? Or are you going to worship rightly in light of Christ and his work and fulfill love and cause it to flourish? That's the question for us from these commandments. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us hear these things, this call to worship rightly that your commands give us, not as a call to do more so that we can come and be accepted by you, but as a call to walk in the blessings and love that Christ has secured for us in his perfect righteousness, as a call to love one another as Christ has loved us, as a call to love you as only Christ can love you and to become more and more like you as we're conformed into the image of your son. Would you accomplish these things by your spirit? We pray, amen.